0: listening to wgdr plainfields and wgdh hardwick community radio from goddard college i listen when i'm naked this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on WTDR. i'm tony lepstein it's the magical mystery tour Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
1: Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-little clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky.
0: Filling it with song. Higher and higher. Filling it with song.
1: Filling it with song.
0: They sound quite mad, don't they? No. Everything you know is wrong.
1: wrong. Hello and never goodbye and don't look behind you, but it's me and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything you know is wrong. Wrong. How do you like that? Why, it's
0: preposterous. Thank you very much. Put your seatbelts on, cause you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up not with your ears, but your mind. And allow me to take you back on fourth through time. To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now. But won't. Further down the line. Good morning. My guest is Charles Eisenstein. He's a visionary thinker, and activist, and the author of numerous books including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World We Know In Our Heart Is Possible, and most recently Climate, A New Story, which we'll be talking about, all of which Deeply explore the fundamental cause of the problems we've created, namely our old stories of separation and scarcity. In his new book, Climate A New Story, you say we need to completely rethink our understanding and approach to climate change and you offer a new way of seeing ourselves in relation to the world and describe a complex interrelationship between the environment and climate change that our current climate policy narrative doesn't take into account. But before we get into talking about the climate issue, I would love for you to talk about your background a bit and how you came to see beyond this old story of separation and scarcity and to recognize it as being just a story.
1: Uh, well, thanks Tonio, for that very broad question. <laughs> um, yeah. I find that when I try to answer a question like that, um, I end up making up a story about myself because I'm not really sure why I do the things that I do. And and so I tend to, probably like most people, I tend to give the reason that fits into my existing self-image and my uh, way of identifying myself in the world and my narrative about the world. So it's actually really hard to answer that honestly, Uh, but I do remember throughout my childhood and, and into my 20s, uh, really puzzling about why the world is the way it is and, and having, harboring this feeling that the world is supposed to be more beautiful. Life is supposed to be more authentic. It's not supposed to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. All of the injustice, all of the, the, the Holocaust, the um, oppression, the prisons, the schools being locked up in school, like all of the dysfunction, I didn't take it for granted. I thought that I had this uh, thieving indignation and idealistic, useful belief that things could be different. And that is what has... And, and also seeing how so many of the solutions and so many of the crusaders had just brought about more of the same in a different form. So that, that's why I began to to... to dig deeper and to try to understand why, how, how, how can we do something actually differently? What is what is the root of the problems that that keep repeating themselves again and again? And so that's when I started thinking in terms of our, and so it, yeah, I went deeper and deeper and deeper to the basic threads of our uh, dominant mythology today which is mythology of separation, the separate self, in a universe of other. And I could go on and on about that, but I think I have, actually, on this show before. So maybe I'll, I'll just pause right there.
0: Well, I don't think it, it hurts to to briefly outline that, because it's it's an issue, it's a perennial human issue that I think we struggle against, no matter how many times we might hear that, that, that revelation of of the nature of that story of separation i think we are still being hit over the head by it you know mm-hmm. within our culture so i i don't think we can we can repeat ourselves too often on that uh, all right
1: well yeah so it's it's a story and it's a system and the system reinforces the story and the story undergirds the system so the story basically says that you are who you really are. Fundamentally, is an individual, uh, a separate self, or a soul encased in flesh, a mode of consciousness, in a world that is not self, in a world that does not have the qualities of a self, uh, in a world that's governed by impersonal mathematical forces and that has no intelligence of its own. If if you accept that, and humanity, civilization, not all of humanity, (coughs) excuse me, not all of humanity, but civilization has accepted that increasingly for thousands of years. If you accept that, then quite naturally, you're going to want to exercise domination and control over the rest of the world. You want to exercise it over other people and other plants and animals uh, because they're Self-interest is fundamentally opposed to yours because we're, we're competing for finite resources in an objective world. So more for you is less for me. That's one piece. And the other piece is because there's no intelligence in the world outside of ourselves to make a better habitation for humanity, we need to impose intelligence onto a world that has none. So the program of domination and control over nature is naturally motivated. By the story of separation. And then from that, we create a world that reinforces the story of separation. For example, we create an economic system that renders us into competing separate individuals and alienated consumers that distances us from the feedback of our, of our actions on nature and makes it seem that, you know, once we're, once we are in this world of commodities, sourced from distant places, it seems very much in our daily existence that what we do to the world does not have to happen to us, that we're separate from the world of nature. So we have a system that reinforces the story that reinforces the system.
0: And the way we're approaching the issue of climate change is emerging out of that that same old story of separation and scarcity and also the separation between ourselves and the natural world and the environment so that we don't necessarily connect environmental issues with well we may not we're probably missing a lot of the at least most of the environmental issues, when we think in terms of how to cope with climate change
1: yeah, I mean there's a bit of a schizophrenia, I think, in the climate change narrative there there is definitely a growing recognition of the holistic nature of of Gaia of the biosphere, and that everything affects everything else, and that even such things as um you know, how we do agriculture uh, affect uh, the carbon in the atmosphere and and that we live in an interconnected system. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Yeah, so there is that growing recognition. But the dominant approach to solving climate change focuses on greenhouse gases, and it kind of linearizes the problem, at least in our conception and treats the earth as kind of like this really complicated machine that if we could uh, change the, like in a diesel engine, if you can change the air-fuel mixture, then the engine will run better. Like we want to find one variable, one cause, one solution to everything, the one thing that will, the, the means, the universal means to the end that we desire. It's a kind of thinking very very much akin to money thinking that says everything you want can happen if only you have enough money. So it's, it's even akin to war thinking that says that all of our problems are because of the enemy. So the mindset of finding the enemy, to find one quantity that we can reduce in order to make a better world, that's a very tempting way of looking at things, but it is not a holistic way of looking at things. It'd be like saying, well, I'm overweight, and so I'm going to... Obviously, the solution is to reduce calories. But that cuts off an inquiry into... Or it potentially cuts off an inquiry into, well, why am I so hungry for more than food that I need? Is it that I have uh, some kind of toxic buildup that needs to be sequestered in fatty tissue? And that my my obesity, so-called, is actually my body's wise response to other conditions. Like, we don't ask that kind of question when we are in linear thinking. So, the, the position that I advocate in my book is, uh, I call it the living planet view, which basically understands Earth as alive, and I would even go so far as to say conscious, because that story of separation that says humans are the only full... Ourselves. That is part of the problem. That's what licenses us to treat Earth and all of its beings as if it, they were just a bunch of resources. So I'm saying, Earth is a living being. And from that position, we, have, and we understand that its health depends on the health of the forests, the wetlands, the mangroves, the coral reefs, the soil, the elephants, the whales, and so on. These are all organs of a living being and then we know that if that if we were somehow able to reduce carbon emissions or even cut them to zero but continue industrial civilization continue the strip mining continue the drilling i mean if we could like imagine a world okay i'm trying to fin- finish that sentence first if we could do that earth would still would still die of organ failure And so you can imagine a world where, say, let's say you do cut down the Amazon, like Bolsonaro wants to do. Like he's the new president of Brazil, right? He's he's uh, advocating superhighways through the Amazon and to clear out the indigenous who are getting in the way of progress and so on. Let's suppose he's successful, and that enormous carbon sink and oxygen generator is converted into a dry, possibly even a desert. Well, that's okay, because we can offset that with vast fields of solar panels and uh, intensive tree plantations and carbon-sucking machines in every city, and if necessary, we can bleach the sky white with sulfur aerosols. Problem solved. When we reduce the problem to a matter of a quantity of something, when when we quantify the problem, then we are in danger of pursuing solutions that lead out an understanding of a living planet. And would you like me to keep going with that?
0: <laughs> well, what I would I would love for you to to clarify to talk more about the notion of the of the planet as as a conscious being, because most people when they think of consciousness, I think they would have a hard time equating that with the planet itself. So I would love for you right. to, to bridge that, that chasm there.
1: Yeah. I um, I have this um, mischievous part of myself that likes to invite trouble. So I could write the book um, with from the scientifically unassailable position that Earth, well, maybe is not alive, but it bears many qualities of a living being. It maintains some kind of dynamic homeostasis, It has um, many layers of complex systems that feed into each other, that interact with each other, and so on, and bears many qualities of life. That's the standard Gaia hypothesis. To go a step further and say Earth actually is alive, and then to go another step further beyond that to say Earth is conscious, Earth bears the full qualities of a being, that is um scientifically i won't say scientifically unsupportable but certainly um will destroy my my legitimacy uh as arguing from you know a scientific basis but i think that
0: it's not measurable at this point
1: right we cannot measure consciousness um But I'm sourcing a lot of my thinking from indigenous people who pretty much universally see this world as a being and full of beings. They they ascribe beingness not only to humans, not only even to animals, but also to plants, also to rivers, to soil, to the sun, to clouds, to rocks, to forests. Not they wouldn't say that only a tree is alive, they would say the forest is alive. The forest thinks, the forest communicates with us. So this viewpoint, this animistic viewpoint, we have seen from the perspective of civilization as this uh kind of um superstitious delusion that we have replaced with scientific knowledge. That view of indigenous ways of knowing and ways of seeing is parallel to the developmentalist view that says that the indigenous people, the undeveloped world, they don't really know how to live as well as we do. And we're going to show them how to live properly and to become developed like us. And by parallel, they also don't know as well as we do. We know the nature of reality much better than they do. How do How can we tell that our ways of knowing and interacting with with materiality are so superior? Well, look at the glorious civilization that we have built. Look how much happier we are than the indigenous. But when you examine that, it begins to dissolve. The one thing, if we are so adept at uh, interacting with the world, then why are we destroying the ecological basis of civilization? Secondly, are we really happier than the indigenous? I don't know if you've ever had the experience of visiting a place on Earth where people are much less developed, but pretty much everywhere you go, the less developed people are, the happier they seem. So we're beginning to question this triumphalist narrative about civilization, and that questioning, to me, comes along with questioning that we really can know better than they know. And so I'm beginning, you know, in my life I've become more and more open to the idea that just as Indigenous people say, the ocean is alive, the planet is alive, the soil is alive, the the trees are, the forest is alive, and conscious even, and maybe even intelligent. Maybe Maybe the whole Earth has a dream or a destiny, for a reason for producing humanity with all of our gifts. So it's not about getting out of the way. It's about asking the question, what are we here to do in service to something bigger than ourselves? And that's a very different question than how can we best utilize the resources that are given to us for our purposes? That, so the, the dominant narrative of climate change is still, is still very much saying, how can we be more clever? And how can we find some other fuel source? How can we be more clever in disposing of natural resources so that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot? And that is a very different attitude than, than right? Because it says, here are the bad things that will happen to us if we continue to uh, emit so much fossil fuels, uh, so much carbon dioxide, I mean, if, if yeah, and, and another, so I want to kind of return to a different environmental narrative that we saw in the 60s and 70s when the, when the future of Earth was not, was not considered to be in danger, and we were talking about saving the whales, and why? Was it because, well, if we don't save the whales, then we'll have huge economic losses and bad things will happen to humanity? No, it was because we love these whales. They are deserving of life. They are precious beings. That is love. But the dominant narrative of climate change is based a lot on fear and this kind of, it's a kind of a narrative of threat and bribery. Here are the bad things that'll happen to you. And in order to, to enforce good behavior, you know, let's tax carbon, let's, let's um, monetize uh, emissions to incentivize better behavior. And I think that the kind of courage that we need to make the big changes necessary to be in partnership and service um, with Gaia, those, those require a lot of courage. And that kind of courage comes through opening to our biophilia, to our innate love and recognition of the sacredness. Of our companions on this planet,
0: and that's one of the things that you talk a fair amount in this book is about the need for us as a species to learn to love life itself, and and the planet, and and all of life as as a lover, as opposed to as as an as an an actuarial accountant, or, or right. a traditional scientist that's just measuring data and trying to understand things from a reductionist perspective.
1: Right, and and you know my my criticism of uh, I call it carbon fundamentalism uh, or the uh, over reliance on quantitative data driven approaches is that something is always left out of the metrics. And what is left out often turns out to be something that is actually really, really important. So if you are guiding policy by carbon metrics, then what's the value of uh, grizzly bears? Or what's the value of whales or salmon? Those don't seem to have much value. It's hard to put a number on the carbon contribution of salmon. You know they're not sequestering that much carbon. Maybe a little bit. Um, fish actually do excrete uh, calcium carbonate, so there's maybe a little bit. But but then when you when you understand things from the whole systems view, and you see that salmon are bringing, you know they're, they're, they they're, they they um, they feed in the ocean and they come up the rivers to spawn, bringing all kinds of uh, minerals, nitrogen, and so forth. Uh, Inland, and then bears and eagles eat them, and then they poop out all these nutrients into the forest. And uh, Brock Dolman was telling me that something like, in some areas, 50 or 60 percent of nitrogen in forests is of marine origin. So they do, like, some kind of isotopic analysis. Um, I don't remember the details, but but a lot of minerals coming in spread by um, salmon and then by megafauna, like bears and eagles. So that makes the forest uh, grow faster and makes them healthier, more resilient to disease, more resilient to fire and therefore better able to harvest. So are you gonna can you put a number on that? Usually the numbers are just are, are put on the things that are easiest to measure, which are emissions and maybe some degree of carbon storage um, in biomass. But underground carbon storage very hard to measure let alone the contribution of, of salmon or or bears or wolves or whales. So my concern is that when we base our thinking and our policy on things that we can quantify, we leave out the things that are hard to quantify, the things that we think that it's not important to quantify, and the things that are fundamentally unquantifiable. So so opens up the question: How do we make choices in the world when we recognize the shortcomings of data? And this is an open-ended question. It's a question that I do not have uh, um, a really well articulated answer. Well, maybe I have some, some idea of the an answer to it. But this is as our as our data-driven policy produced perverse results as we build big hydro dams that end up making the ecological crisis worse, even though we could calculate how much, how many coal-fired power plants they'd, they would replace. When we plant gigantic biofuel plantations uh, and, and cause ecological devastation, and then later on we do the math and we say, oh, actually those were even bad from a carbon perspective. Then and uh, maybe when enough of these failures pile up, we'll start asking the question: we'll see, uh, How should we guide our collective choices, if not through quantitative
0: means? And you talk about how the planet, like like our human bodies, n- know how to regulate themselves, know how to to heal themselves, and that we, the way we're currently. Relating to the natural world and the environment, we're we're actually getting in the way of and destroying the planet's innate capability of self-regulation, just as we would be doing to ourselves if we were to start removing body parts or organs of our own body.
1: Um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the way I
0: see
1: it. You know, the, the forest here, I I. I grew up in Pennsylvania where the forest has been clear cut maybe five, six, seven times and it's trying so hard to to recover. And um, a lot of the invasive species, so called, are actually the attempt of the land to recover from the damage that's been done. So it invites in whatever species is going to meet its immediate needs most quickly and then we, you know, go to war against those things. There's a, a book like Orion called Beyond the War on Invasive Species that influenced my thinking on this matter. So, yeah, I mean, if you continue to dump pesticides into the environment, if you continue to cut the forest, if you continue to plow the land again and again, um, that's like ripping off your skin, you know? Like, like the Earth is going to have trouble recovering. And a lot of people then seeing the damage that we've done think that the best course of action would be to absent ourselves from ecology and maybe retreat into technological enclaves and let nature be restored to its pristine state. But that idea that that we are uh, burdens on nature is actually a subtle kind of human exceptionalism just as bad in the end as saying human beings are the lords and masters of nature. Because the way ecology works is that every species has a gift to give toward the uh, health and development of the collective. So it's not, so the goal for, for civilization should not be to leave no trace, but to leave a positive trace or a beautiful trace and this is what indigenous people, at least some of the, um, some of their cultures were able to do in North America, uh, they would, as Kat Anderson put it, they were tending the wild, um, shaping and pruning nature so that it became more biodiverse, more productive, better able to support people and all other beings too. So we have, and there are people doing this today already, people practicing regenerative agriculture, people practicing earth repair, ecosystem repair, uh, going to places and, and saying, okay, how can we restore the damage that was done by the extermination of beavers, for example. Beavers were a key organ of Gaia uh, throughout North America where they they there was no such thing as like the kind of stream that we see, the kind of mountain brook, you know, flowing down. Like, that wasn't the way it was. They It was a series of beaver dams that slowed down the water so much that it had time to sink into the earth and 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 come out again um, as springs that, after the beavers were exterminated, dried up. The springs dried up. The, the, all these wetlands turned into... Uh, narrow waterways and you can look at maps from like the 17th 18th century and and like a lot of the streams that are on the maps today weren't there you know they were just these wetlands so how do some people are looking at that how do we repair this damage and so they're putting um check dams you know they're, they're like ecosystem restoration gorillas going into state forests and, and trying to do this kind of work trying to repair the land and so i think that as humanity or civilization that transitions into a new relationship to Earth, seeing ourselves no longer as separate, seeing ourselves as part of a family of life. Then we begin to say, how can we serve the healing of this planet? And if we direct our, our collective will toward planetary healing, there is no crisis that exists today that will be impossible to solve. So this, Maybe I'll say one more thing. This leads into another thing I discussed in the book, which is the um, uh, inextricable link between social well-being and ecological well-being. In the climate movement, you hear things about, well, climate change will disproportionately affect communities of color and poor people and so on. But it's also goes the other way around. It's that if we have um, a unjust, war-oriented society, then our collective will will never be devoted toward ecological healing and, in fact, our internal division, our exploitation of each other will be mirrored in a war on nature and the exploitation of natural resources. It's the same mindset, the same mindset of competition, separation, scarcity. If if we practice it among ourselves, we're also going to practice it on nature. And that means that every dimension of healing is part of the vast project of healing. And and that even though the uh, there is no carbon number that you could put on housing homeless people, yet if you devote your life to that, if you devote your life toward any form of social justice or healing, you're also contributing to ecological healing. You're not wasting your time.
0: That's such an unrecognized correlation between the way we relate to our environment and the planet and life and the, and the, the state of our, our social and, and social justice approach to the world around us. And I would love for you to, to make more connections in that and to elaborate more on this new story of, of how we need to, to really grow and evolve as a species. And you even use the metaphor of climate change as a kind of rite of passage that humanity has, needs to go through.
1: Yeah, um, okay, there's a lot in that. So well, when I talk about a, a new story, or I like to actually say a new and ancient story, because it does draw on ancient roots that you can still find today in um, indigenous cultures and in the um, wisdom lineages of the dominant culture. Um <laughs> And also in the marginalized parts of our own psyches, uh, even if you did grow up in the dominant culture, there's a native part of you that sees the world through the eyes of interbeing. I use TikTok Han's word for the new story, interbeing, uh, that understands that we are not alone here, that sees the world through kind of magical eyes, that Sees the sun as looking down on you. This is, do you. Do you recognize that childlike part of you? There's the sun, and maybe your mind, your rational mind, says, "Yes, that's a ball of fusing hydrogen gas, fusing into helium, and uh, radiating electromagnetic energy <laughs> toward the Earth." Which, right? You have like some some uh, scientific story, maybe. I mean, probably most people don't know very much. They kind of take it for granted that there's some explanation for it. But there's um, a part of us that instinctively sees the sun looking at us and knows the sun is a living being. That's completely irrational. Uh, Although, actually, I would say not that irrational. In the end, I think we will understand that the sun is a living being as we start to look at its electromagnetic structure, more complex than that of the human brain. Um, It's not just, like, a random mass of burning gas. It's uh, incredibly complicated and beautiful and has many layers of order. So, anyway, that's kind of an aside. Um, Yeah, so, so the story of interbeing is an ancient story, ancient in culture and ancient to a certain part of ourselves. And it says, essentially, that um, we are relational, that who I am fundamentally is not a separate consciousness, but the totality of of my relationships. It's hard to even uh, articulate it without invoking paradox. I am my relationships. Well, who is the I? So, so the, our English language with its normal associations makes it hard really to express the story of interbeing. But we can look at the intuitions and consequences that come from it. For example, one of them would be that any judgment I have about another person is a mirror of something in myself. Another would be that any um, extinction or depletion of the natural world will affect ourselves in some way. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to die too, but it means that there's an inner extinction of something, a, a, a loss. And I think that all of us in civilization can feel that loss on some level when we look at a depleted landscape, when we when we no longer see the full complement of natural beings that we once saw, the the fecundity of nature that was once in our face every day. Um, we feel uh, a void. We feel a longing, and this perhaps. And so this distancing from nature that happens through the story of separation and through all of the institutions built on that story leaves us terribly impoverished when we no longer look out and know the names of all those trees out there and their life cycles. Like we know nothing, most of us know nothing about, maybe it's different in Vermont where you guys are, but in most places, um, people no longer know what the smell of those different bushes and, and plants is going to be if you took it and crushed it a little bit. Most people no longer know what kind of soil this one grows in and what kind that one grows in and how early they flower and what kinds of insects visit those particular kinds of flowers. We're not in this uh, matrix of relatedness anymore. And so the the resulting feeling of alienation, which comes from a part of ourselves, being cut off. Because if we are relational beings, then this alienation is a diminishment of self. That breeds an insatiable hunger. to Actually, it's to restore a lost connection. But instead, we are offered substitutes for the connections in the form of consumer products. And in the form of false security bestowed by money, which is a substitute for the true security of feeling like you belong in the world. So the appetite for the false substitute for what we really need is endless, because no amount of it meets the need. And so we have a society endlessly hungry for economic growth, endlessly hungry for more and more stuff. And then the environmental movement turns around and blames the symptom as the cause, blames the symptom of greed, the symptom of consumerism as the cause of the ecological crisis. But in fact, the cause is the cutoff. The cause is the story of separation. The cause is the alienation. Once you have that in place, then consumerism, addiction, greed, and so on are inevitable. And so I'm asking that we look deeper into the cause and and question our basic, basic stories about who we are and what the world is. And then also, at the same time, to address the trauma that comes from these stories and that contributes to these stories. So it's not just about changing beliefs, because people's beliefs about the world, about politics, about each other, they come from a state of being that's much more than an intellectual state of being. If someone has been um, abused their whole lives, if someone started out you know, as an abused child and um, has been... Robbed of their birthright in various ways, then they're going to be attracted to hateful ideologies of one sort or another. So that's the whole other theme of the book is, is the pattern of mistaking symptoms for causes and going to war against the symptom, which is a formula for endless war. And it's re- replicated in all domains of our culture. Um, in the domain of war, for example, you know, mistaking the symptom. Um, which is, say, terrorism for a cause and then going to war against the terrorism or mistaking a symptom, say, immigration, um, and going to, to war against immigration, building a wall, never asking what breeds terrorism, what breeds immigration, what breeds crime. No, we go to war against the symptom, kill them, lock them up, wall them out. But what is the cause? That is an uncomfortable question for two reasons. First being that the cause involves ourselves. We start, if you want to look at the cause of immigration, you got to start talking about neoliberal economics and military imperialism. Like once you have that happening, stripping the wealth from places like Central America, rendering them destitute, breeding violence there, of course people are going to want to immigrate. It's not actually about racism. The conversation, racism is only a facilitation of the war. It's not the cause either. It's another example of mistaking symptom for cause. The second reason that it's uncomfortable is that we then, once we go to that level, we don't know what to do. What we are used to doing is finding something to fight, which is why the climate movement is so comfortable with the fight against climate change and identifying something to fight. Abstractly, carbon dioxide, more concretely, uh, fossil fuel companies and executives and politicians find somebody to fight and the problem can be solved. And so right and left agree on this basic formula, this basic political formula. They only disagree on who is the bad guy and who to fight. And, and then they finally agree that it's a junk. And so we have an endless fraud, uh, an endless melee that leaves the deep quality unexamined and untouched, except on the fringes. And that's why we will never have a resolution to immigration problems, or terrorism, or anything else until we put down the polarizing lenses that we're seeing the world through and start to look at the people called
0: Well, I'm thinking about the, the huge challenge that, that humanity faces, considering that most of humanity are now living in cities on the, around the planet and are Essentially disconnected from from everything, from the natural world, and I'm wondering how people living in that sort of environment can connect, reconnect with the natural world, and 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 recognize the their interrelationship with with the world when when they're living in in that type of environment which just continually reinforces their sense of separation
1: yeah um so the the physical infrastructure of the city is part of part of this problem and i'm not sure if you if you're asking me to address that like on the personal level or on the social level on the social level we can look at the causes of urbanization the reasons that um, rural economy has become uncompetitive, uh, globalization, things like that. This has been pretty much a deliberate policy to, to um, empty the countryside and turn it <clears throat> into this uh, industrial agricultural production zone um, that is uh, incentivized by the commodity agricultural system and the system of global trade and so on. There's like a whole story there. Urbanization is not this inevitability that people want to better themselves, so they move to cities and they want to distance themselves from the lowly life of the soil. This is an economic system and an ideology at that level.
0: Right. So actually what I was, I recognize that I think most of our listeners get that, but what I'm getting at is how can we create the kind of change that we need to in order to thrive as a species on this planet, and to actually work move towards creating the more beautiful world that we know in our heart is possible when we're essentially locked in these cities fed everything is fed to us artificially, including information and news about the world around us. so how do we
1: yeah that's uh, why, uh, so this, you know I, I'm not okay. This question needs to be looked at, of how do we do something? For me, it's not the right question. Uh, It gets confusing because do you mean how do I do something or how does a generalized person do something, and is there even a generalizable formula for what to do? So I'd like to replace that with another question. If you want to ask it on a personal level, it is what is my next step toward living in and serving a new story and what that next step what's the next step of reconnection what's the next step of reunion what's the next step of healing and that is going to be very different for different people that next step becomes more available to people when they are given information of various kinds about how the world is and what the world needs. That information could be intellectual information, but it can also be conveyed on the body level, um, on the level of of direct experience. Uh, and it could be anything from some kind of spiritual experience to just the experience of being unconditionally accepted, to receiving generosity, to receiving forgiveness, those kinds of things. Those are data points if you experience forgiveness, um, if you experience generosity, if you experience unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, um, that is a data point that does not fit into the story of separation. So the more that we become carriers of that and the more that we are able to see other people for who they truly want to be in their soul as a giver, as a contributor, as a participant, in a beautiful emergence on Earth. The more we're able to see people that way, the more we become a walking invitation for them to be that way, and the more we are able to offer the, um, the grist for the transformative mill. So, you know, otherwise, like that question, what should we do, um, you know, I could describe social policies and things like that, but how are those gonna happen? In the current political climate, the the change is so huge and so thoroughgoing that it has to include the very very um, most basic elemental um, atoms atoms of politics, uh, which comes down to personal relationships. So. Yeah, that next step will be different for different people and it's not so, so yeah, we are very cut off from nature, cut off by the physical infrastructure, cut off by the economic infrastructure, cut off by our education, cut off in so many ways. So what is that next step back into reconnection to nature for one person? For somebody, it might be to plant a garden. Um, I've got a friend from Brazil who grew up in a favela that has no nature whatsoever, yet he is a strong environmentalist because he experienced nature in the form of humanity all patched together in circumstances where money could not solve your issues, where people had to rely on each other. And so he learned about ecology that way. So I think maybe a good first step is to recognize how impoverished and depleted our current uh, landscape is, figuratively and literally. And to, once we recognize that, then we know why it hurts. And we can begin to meet the real needs for ourselves and for other people and take that first step toward uh, a healed world.
0: Yeah. Well, there's this story that you tell in the book, um, the why should I love my son story, which I think mm-hmm. is Emblematic of of the crisis that we're facing as a species.
1: Yeah, um, that 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 would be more relevant to what I was saying before about um, about not seeing Earth anymore as just a bunch of resources to be used for maximum human benefit, but to see it as a thing in itself that is worthy itself of of love that is precious and sacred, and so the metaphor was that if I, may I maybe I'll, I'll just I'm not going to repeat it. But
0: well, actually, I think that, uh, I think it would be good for you to tell the the story <clears throat> because I think it 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 can br- connect us. It can lead us into the the story of love that that is is lacking. Currently, and 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 I, th- which I think is is a core element of the new story that you are alluding All right. to.
1: All right, so Tonio, here I am, you know, with my cell phone in hand. And what if I said to you, I love my cell phone? Well, actually, what if I said to you, what if I said to you, you know, I'm just going to leave it out in the rain? Actually, let's let's not say I love it. Let's say I, I, I say to you, I'm just going to leave this out in the rain. Why not? Why should I take care of it? And you say, Charles, if you don't take care of it, then you're going to lose all your data and you'll have to buy a new cell phone. And I say, oh, yeah, you're right. I'll take better care of my cell phone. We recognize that as a, a healthy conversation. You're giving me a good reason to take care of it. But that would that would be an unhealthy conversation if I said, why should I take care of my son? And And you said, well, Charles, if you don't, if you just, like, abandon him and leave him out in the rain, then... CPS is going to come and charge you with child neglect and your neighbors are going to think terribly of you and your son is going to grow up and he won't want to take care of you in your old age. And I say, yeah, Tony, oh, you're right. Uh, maybe I better take care of my son. Like that is messed up. You know that there's a problem here because essentially we're putting my son in the same category as the cell phone. Take care of him. Otherwise bad things will happen to me. Well, Imagine when we do that to the planet, when someone says, why should we take care of the rainforest? Well, because it has, you know, X value of ecosystem services and, um, you know, think of all the medicines we'll be able to make from the plants there, and besides, it's providing carbon sequestration, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, Um, it is valuable, let's take care of it. Essentially, we're putting it in the same category as a cell phone. Take care of it because of the benefit or potential harm to ourselves. And so there's lots of problems with that. Um, one problem is that it reinforces the wrong mindset. Another problem is that whatever value we place on it is going to be finite. So we could put a finite value on the Amazon. Say we say, oh, say, let's make it high. Say it's worth $5 trillion. Well, when, once we put that value on it, we are also saying that if we could make $10 trillion by cutting that baby down and mining the rare earth minerals and drilling the oil and selling the timber, then we should do it because we put a value on it. What if we can do that? Like, what if one potential future is a concrete world with bubble cities, machines to make oxygen, synthetic food, robot servants, and digital displays of nature scenes of everything that we've destroyed. Artificial atmosphere, carbon-sucking machines, um, technology to replace nature. What if we could do that? Should we? a world of economic growth. It's a world where everything has been quantified and taken taken into account. And what has been left out are the things you can't quantify. And so we have, we will have destroyed all of those things because we have not held them valuable. That is a future that we are moving towards step by step. Actually, every year the planet is becoming a little more dead. And in the book I ask, what will it take to change that? What will it take for us to make a different choice, a choice toward a living planet? And I think that at least a key element of that new choice, a key condition, is to see the planet as alive to begin with. I say in the book, if we see the planet as dead, we will kill the planet. Our stories are powerful. If we see the planet as a dead thing, we will choose in the direction of death we will kill the planet if we if we see the planet as alive then we will be able to serve its healing our perceptions and our stories are very powerful and that is when without our stories humans are just another animal it's our our collective stories that guide and channel our creativity and labor toward a unified goal the whole world is built on story, and that's why I am dedicated to changing the story, or actually I would say to serving a change in our story that really wants to happen. A new story wants to be born, and all of us have a role to play in that
0: birth. I love that notion of every everybody and everything playing a role in the birthing of the new story because I think we we tend to see or we tend to not realize that we are relating to the world around us from the basis of a story that we're living in that we're we're completely oblivious to and because we're completely oblivious to it we're not aware that we can change the story
1: Yeah, Um, and I think that that we are becoming less oblivious to it. I think that maybe not the very, very deepest mythology, but a lot of our our, uh, guiding stories, especially in in North America, and especially in the United States, are disintegrating. The story that that most people accepted that America is the best country in the world, bringing democracy to the world, the, the shining example. Like, most people believed that, Um, and that is, I think, that the whole Trump phenomenon is actually a a sign of people's desperation to hold on to that story when it has been eroding for a very long time. Or the story that uh, modern medicine is going to fix all of our problems and give us uh, vibrant health and 200-year lifespans. Like, that's something everybody believed fifty or sixty years ago. It was you know, it was what disease will we conquer next? And no one really believes that that our or maybe not no one, but most people no longer have that kind of deep faith in medical progress. Our health is getting worse, not better. And you can go down the line, like the whole project of civilization as we had conceived it is no longer a compelling story. So whatever whatever you know, whatever realm you're talking about, technology, economics, politics, um, education, our stories are no longer vibrant. People are no longer people go through the motions um, of following these stories. but even like you know even the elites who whose job it is to propagate the stories no longer believe them. And in my estimation, when I was a kid, uh, the the politicians, they truly believed, and so did most of the public, truly believed that the Soviet Union was a dangerous threat. Like, we were afraid of the Soviet Union. But now when they are on CNN blathering about Iran or whatever, they're just pretending to be concerned. They're not really concerned, and neither is the public. Nobody's afraid of Iran and its potential nuclear program or, or you know, al-Assad's chemical weapons arsenal or whatever, whatever lies were being said, people don't believe them anymore. So the narrative fabric of our current political system is slowly unraveling. So I think that as these stories unravel that had defined what reality was to us, more and more people are beginning to question more of what we've been told is real. I think another... I mean, people are having mystical experiences. People are having um, healing that medical science says is impossible. I, I think that, I don't know, just drawing an analogy from personal experience, that part of the process of letting go is to hold on all the more tightly to what has been. That prescriptions for surrender... Um, are not actually actionable <clears throat> until the time has come to surrender. And 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 that phase of of trying to grasp on to <coughs> excuse me, trying to grasp on to what is dying, maybe it serves an important purpose. Maybe it it allows us to <coughs> excuse me, allows us to squeeze the last juice out of a certain way of being certain uh certain self i don't know i'm just speculating here letting go is hard and and maybe one reason that we're we we have not let go yet is that we haven't really this is part of a, of a culture-wide phenomenon of not accepting death um, and denying death which is another part of the story of separation uh the the Fetish for youth, the fetish for preservation, the fetish for growth, and also and the denial of,
0: and also the the denial of the death of of an old dream, thinking that we can just consume and enjoy the resources of the planet to live with total impunity of any consequences of our actions.
1: Yeah, and, and so that. That narrative, I think, carries some problematic assumptions, though. Uh, the narrative of we've been living beyond our means, we've been uh, using too much for ourselves, we've been enjoying it too much for ourselves, and and recklessly thinking that we could get away with it forever. The, the thing that, the unexamined assumption that, assumption there is that all of this so-called enjoyment has actually benefited us. And, and this brings me back to, to the um, observation that less developed so-called people are generally happier um, despite their materially um, less, like, despite their uh, seemingly objective material poverty, they are, are generally, I mean, if you've been to these places, they're, they're more joyful, uh, more content. Uh, they they seem to have more time. They are they dance in the streets. You know they they seem to enjoy life more than um, technological people. And then if you look at uh, I mean just look at our society. Look at the depression, the rates of depression, uh, the rates of anxiety. Something like about one one in five women, I think maybe one in six men, are on. Psychiatric medication of some sort, uh, not to mention the ones who self-medicate with opioids. I mean, this is not the picture of a happy society. So the idea that we have benefited so much from this is an ideology that, that depends on certain metrics. And again, we're coming, we're going to return to a problem of, of, of metrics. It depends on certain happiness metrics that, uh, people like Steven Pinker trumpet to no end that average life expectancy is longer, um, the number of people who die violently is lower, uh, GDP per capita is higher. Uh, like down the line, all, all of these uh, educational levels are higher, uh, literacy is higher. So we must be happier, right? Because certainly a literate person is happier than an illiterate person, than a primitive peasant. And a savage hunter-gatherer, right? Because now we are we've risen above that. So, in so so, the ideology of development is used to um, prove the benefits of development. It's a it's a circular argument, and that uh, the bankruptcy of that. I think it's becoming clear to us, and I think that that our transition to a different kind of society, it's not going to come by by saying, "Well, we've we've been living it up too much. We've been too happy at the expense of all other beings." It's going to come because we're saying it isn't working. Even if we could sustain it, we don't want to. The question is not about sustainability. The question is, what do we want to sustain? Who do we want to be? And when we recognize, and when we when we. Uh, You recognize that this is not benefiting us. And when we can even look at the wealthy, at the 1%, and saying, and, and say, I want you to have a better life. Because even at the top end of our culture, you are receiving a pale substitute of what life could be. I want life to be better for you. Then we are no longer in an adversarial stance with regard to the 1%, the power elite, the corporate elite, and so on. We're, we're, we're saying we're in this together. We want a better life for everybody, including you. Because I know that you didn't really want that yacht. You know, you didn't want those sports cars. You didn't want that private jet. Those things, those are not your deepest soul desire. Those are perhaps a way of, um, of demonstrating self-respect or demonstrate, or, or, or you know, I was just reading a fantastic book, an economics book um by this guy Dupuis this French guy um, who's pointing out that Adam Smith was actually this revolutionary thinker who was saying people are are who's basically saying it's a myth that people are pursuing wealth or material benefit. It's actually that they want to uh, be respected, so we have. <clears throat> So if we have a society where, where people have been stripped of respect and the only way to get it is through ostentatious consumption, then, of course, they're going to do that. But that's not really what they want, to feel. I mean, I, I come back to to feel that you are at home in the universe, to feel that you belong, to be held in community. These are sorely lacking in wealthy societies, and particularly among the wealthy. So so yeah that whole narrative of we're going to have to make do with less and the implication we're going to have to be less happy that needs to be examined and i would say we're going to have to make do with more more of what we really want and less of the false substitutes for that because we have we are living in an abundant world and you might say oh that's just your white privilege speaking charles because there are so many people who are living in scarcity and poverty That's not because, actually, that's not because of any material lack. That's because of maldistribution. The fundamental abundance is still there. And if we diverted our society's resources away from war-making and away from piles of plastic junk and away from prison industrial complexes and things like that, we would have tremendous abundance for everybody. Half of all food is wasted already. And the biggest irrigated crop in America is lawn grass. This is a matter of perception and priority. It is not a matter of fundamental scarcity. So, so, and yeah, people are experiencing horrible scarcity. But the idea that that scarcity can be resolved by economic growth, I, i.e., that it can be resolved by even more of what we have right now, that is insanity. Okay, end of rant.
0: Okay, so getting back to climate change and the crisis that we face... Every every time I I hear anything about it on the news, they're talking about reducing carb, carbon emissions, um, creating carbon tax policies. It sounds like to me that all of these numerical um, policy based or numerically based policy decisions or ideas or or narratives don't address the core issue so i would i would like for you to talk more about the the issue of carbon reductionism versus the the complex nature of climate change and also the complex nature of of our need to transition from from our old story to a new story that i think many people are don't aren't connected to, don't even necessarily know exists.
1: Yeah. So, one of the mottos, a sentence that I repeat several times in the book, I think, is life creates the conditions for life. So, and I said that even if we cut carbon emissions to zero, if we continue to degrade the wetlands, the mangroves, the corals, the forests, the fish, the whales, and so on—the Earth will still die a death of a million cuts. So, in order to have a resilient planet, we've got to stop doing that. Something like eighty percent of the Asian mangroves have been destroyed. I think—I think it's maybe it's half. I can't remember. Eighty percent of the seagrass meadows in New England are gone. Um, there are half the number of trees there were a few centuries ago. Um, the, you know the the. The, the population of whales is maybe 1% what it was uh, before commercial whaling. So if we had healthy ecosystems, I don't think carbon emissions would be a problem. Carbon emissions become a terrible problem when the, the organs that maintain Gaian equilibrium, that maintain, I mean, it's kind of a... Uh, homeostasis isn't quite the right word because it's a very dynamic homeostasis, but the organs that maintain that are seriously degraded. And that means that greenhouse gases become a much bigger threat than they otherwise would be. If you look at the history of the planet, I mean, we've had tremendous uh, climate uh, changes. Uh, There weren't even ice caps 13, 13 million years ago. Antarctica had forests on it, you know. And even in the Holocene, even um, uh, a few thousand years ago, uh, Earth was way warmer than it was today. So I, I don't think that it's temperature per se that is the problem, average temperature per se. I think it's the degradation of the organs and tissues of Gaia. And that if we want to focus on one substance, instead of carbon, I would consider maybe focusing on water. Because a lot of the uh, problems that we attribute to climate change, that we attribute to global warming caused by greenhouse gases, in in my research, I've become more and more convinced that a lot of those are actually due to disruptions of the hydrological cycle. And these disruptions are caused primarily by deforestation and by um, agricultural practices. And, uh, but, you know, also by things like extermination of beavers and things like that. So when you, so for example, when you cut down forests and strip land of its cover, then the rains, instead of soaking in to the water table, instead of getting slowed down by leaves and leaf litter and then penetrating the the holes in the ground made by uh, a rich biota, um, earthworms, for example, things like that, instead of doing that, it just runs off carrying soil with it, and then and then it's not held in the soil, so there's no trees and, and other plants to transpire the water back into the air to form clouds and to, to extend the rainy season so you have um, all the water coming down and flooding because there's nothing to soak it up. There's, no, there's not a sponge anymore. They so have terrible floods followed by terrible droughts. And you can and so normally, you know, these floods and droughts now are being blamed on climate change, aka greenhouse gases, but that that kind of bypasses the destructive practices that are ongoing on a local and regional level. And and when people so so it's, it's basically replacing a local cause that you can do something about with a global cause that you really can't do very much about. You have to depend on distant authorities to do something about it. So it, it, it creates local disempowerment. And, and not only that, but like globally, you know, the world has come to an agreement that we're going to do something about this, yet we are helpless to do anything about this after each climate conference, we get an increase in emissions. The world is powerless to do anything about it be, be, for the same reason that that raising the price of alcohol isn't going to stop someone from being an alcoholic. The Because the, cause the under, not underlying need for fossil fuels has been unchanged. So anyway, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that fossil fuel emissions are, are not a problem. And in fact, <laughs> here's the paradox that if we turned our attention toward preserving what I'm calling the organs of Gaia, if we said we are not going to cut down any more forests, we are not going to pollute any more water, we are not going to destroy any more ecosystems, we are not going to endanger marine mammals with oil spills, we are not going to like we wouldn't be able to do any more fracking, any more offshore oil drilling, any more mountaintop removal, any more strip mines, any more tar sand excavation, no more pipelines, none of this stuff without even needing, uh, greenhouse gas reasons for it. We would hold every place sacred. So I think that the living earth, sacred earth view actually will bring about more reductions in carbon emissions than the carbon narrative will there's actually no opposition here between my views and the views at least from a policy level of the carbon mainstream except that i think that big hydro nuclear power plants and biofuels plantations are a horrendous disaster and this is what's happening with the carbon narrative you know you get um Someone planting. Like, uh, there's a, right now an enormous land grab going on in Africa, Central America, and some other places, where 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 multinational corporations are buying huge tracts of land that were once farmed by indigenous peasants or were were um, natural ecosystems, and they're clearing everything out, planting palm oil, planting. Uh, what are they call? jatropha trees, planting eucalyptus trees, or whatever uh, to, to use as fuel. Like it's like the ultimate reduction of ecology. It's reduction into fuel, into heat. that is and and they get carbon credits for doing it. that That is where the uh, mania for metrics and reductionism leads us. So in those things, I am probably aligned with most environmentalists and thinking those are terrible. But that is, um, yeah, that's the, the danger of, of carbon reductionism. It leads to places, it, 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 again, because of what I was saying earlier, because it leaves out the things that are hard to measure or that cannot be measured. It leads out to qualitative, it leads out the ecological. Because, because for, from the metrics, um, tree plantation is almost as good as a virgin forest if you're only looking at carbon. But what if you start looking at um, the clouds that a healthy ecosystem generates because it emits um, uh, certain compounds that feed cloud formation? If that's not part of the metrics.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how. People in the the mainstream climate movement and and policymakers may have been um, responding to this new book of yours.
1: Um, uh, uh, well, <laughs> I think that most of them haven't been responding to it because it's it's has not gotten uh, mainstream attention. Um, some of, you know some of them have. Um, and I, I guess I get really mixed responses. Some people are like, "Oh my God, I've been waiting for somebody to say this." Others are like, "You're a climate denier and a threat to the planet because you're not you're not calling on us to do everything it takes to cut carbon emissions as soon as possible." So, in in a very polarized situation, and and this is you know across the political landscape. Everyone's getting more and more polarized. The first question you ask is, which side are you on? And if you're saying something a little different or a little hard to categorize, then it's like, "Uh uh-oh, you must be on the other side because you're not advancing our narrative. And the narrative I'm advancing is... is, um... equally troubling to... you know, I've put it out there on some of the, uh... skeptical websites, too. And... Uh, that you might call deniers, and they, even though I'm somewhat skeptical of the uh, computer model predicted runaway global warming narrative, um, these people are repulsed by what I'm saying, because I'm, I'm, I'm saying we've got to uh, protect the environment. I mean, because basically, what the skeptical or denial websites are saying, they're saying, they're, they're saying, yes, we agree that that the question is about global warming, and we don't think there is global warming. Therefore, we don't have to worry about the environment. We'll see the ahead. And what I'm saying is, regardless of whether there is greenhouse gas-induced global warming, that is dangerous. Regardless of that, we still need to protect the the integrity of every ecosystem on earth whether or not it's it's an existential threat to civilization because these beings are precious and also understanding that our well-being whether it is measurable or not depends on the well-being of all of all of the systems and beings of Gaia we are not separate from this earth that's what I'm saying, and it is not within the spectrum of of positions in, in the climate debate. It's outside that spectrum. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. If we have global cooling, then I'm still, every bit as urgent to preserve the Amazon. But if you are pinning the Amazon, protecting Amazon, on the global warming, and there is cooling for some reason, like, maybe the skeptics are right. Maybe that... That you know, solar fluctuations um, allow uh, more cosmic rays to come in. That feed more clouds that cause global cooling, like, and trigger an ice age. Like, what if they're right? Does that mean oh, forget about the Amazon? Full speed ahead, drill baby drill. No, drill baby drill. No. So I, I think it's dangerous to pin environmentalism onto global warming. Because in my view, whether or not we have warming or cooling, we still got to protect the Amazon you still got to protect the Congo, the, the the Borneo and Sumatra and the whales and the sea turtles. I agree but with if, you. If, yeah, okay. You get the picture.
0: Yes. Peter, welcome. So,
1: I, I really agree with a lot of what you're saying, and rather than get bogged down in the details of the arguments as to whether the sun is getting hotter or the earth is getting hotter, you made some points at the end of your book that I was in... Total agreement with, and just in these last few minutes, you made some really good points in the in the last chapter of your book. And I was wondering if you could just hit those as as, as you end, because I know you're running out of time. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you for your efforts. You have really bitten off a huge chunk of stuff to chew on. Thank you. Bye. Oh uh, well, thank you for. That. Um... <laughs> Now I'm a little panicked trying to remember what I wrote in the last chapter. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> you wrote a lot in the, was, in the last chapter, and you offered a lot of different possible solutions or a, a whole series of, of solutions. I'm not exactly sure what he was referring to, but we only have a couple of minutes to to go into that. Yeah. Um, I'm actually looking
1: at the book right now. Um Oh yeah, I think I just uh, yeah I was I was yeah I made a list of of policies and priorities. Um, I was, I, in the last chapter, I just wanted to get those really practical, um, and I think maybe I, in, later in, I, I wrote an article that's published online somewhere that where I summed it up and I said um, I gave four priorities uh, from the living planet view. First priority is to protect whatever remaining pristine ecosystems exist. Uh, especially the Amazon and the Congo because these are the deep reservoirs of of the planet's memory of health this is where there is still health and if it's still there then it can be spread over the whole world like this, these reservoirs of biodiversity and proper functioning and and maybe even the soul of gaia is still intact in these places the first priority absolute first priority is conservation Second priority: regeneration to heal the damage that's been done, and that primarily means regenerative agriculture and reforestation, and not necessarily like drones planting vast numbers of trees, but but uh, intimate relationship to every piece of land. That's what we have to turn our collective attention to.
0: And we have the third
1: priority. We have one minute left. Yep. Go ahead. Good. Third priority stop dousing the entire environment in pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, and so forth, uh, and to- and other toxic chemicals, uh, because that degrades the earth at the tissue level. Fourth priority, still important, but fourth priority is to cut greenhouse gas emissions. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what I came to by the end of the book.
0: Okay, well. I want to thank you so much for this book, for all of your writings, and for being on the show. My guest has been Charles Eisenstein. He's a visionary thinker, activist, former Goddard faculty member, and the author of numerous books, including his latest book that we've been talking about, Climate, A New Story. Again, thank you so much for being on the show and for all your great work. Thank you, Tanya.: Bye-bye and be well. Thanks. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.